4: A couple of recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings have brought up the topic of federalism again, state sovereignty. And Sanford Levinson is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. He's also a professor of government at UT Austin. And he had an opinion piece that ran in the Dallas Morning News on the last day of July of 2022. So we called him. One of the questions that came into my mind was, and you sort of answered it, but I'd like you to expound on it. Uh, expand on it, is, are we headed back to a confederation?
2: Well, I think it's an excellent question. I think it's important to realize that I wear two hats. One of them is as a law professor. I've been at UT now for 42 years in the law school, but I'm also a professor of government. Responding to your question, I'm more inclined to wear my political science hat Mm. than my lawyer hat, because I think what your question really gets at is the degree to which the culture as a whole is moving towards some kind of radical decentralization. You refer to the Artists Confederation. I have a fleeting reference in the morning news piece to secession. Mm -hmm. And if you ask me as a lawyer, what about these things, we could spend the rest of our time together talking about the legality of secession or the legality of this, that, or the other. But I think that what has been true from the very beginning is that the American Union, the United States of America, is an idea to which people are either committed psychologically in terms of their identity, how they will sacrifice, or not. And what lawyers say is quite often irrelevant. Um, There's a reason that Abraham Lincoln didn't turn to the federal courts in 1860 to get an injunction Against Texas from seceding, mm. uh, you know, the Supreme Court thunders in 1869 that we're an indissoluble union of indissoluble states, but that's just thunderation. We killed 750,000 people between 1861 and 1865 over an ideological conflict. So this is a long way of saying that I think it is truly a matter for debate and worry about how many people today are becoming less and less committed to a project of the United States of America and have a desire, a fantasy, whatever you want to call it, depending where you are Mm. on the ideological spectrum, of returning to what I would regard as a fantasy good old days where states were, quote, sovereign, unquote. And perhaps the main theme of my piece was that the Supreme Court over the last 30 or 40 years especially – has really played very hard on the theme of state sovereignty. There's nothing innocent about that idea. (laughs) Sovereigns ultimately can make all sorts of independent decisions and not really care about other entities. Um, So I think it is something we should be discussing as you are. Texas is especially interesting in this regard. After the 2012 election, about 125,000 Texans sent in a petition to the White House saying they'd like to withdraw. Now, I spend a lot of time with my non-Texan friends pointing out that we have about 28 million people in Texas, and 125,000 is not really a significant percentage of that 28 million. That being said, it's more than any other state in the country. And one never knows when relatively small groups will ignite and you'll get, you know, a flash fire or something of genuine political significance. We've had, you know, Greg Abbott as governor and before that as attorney general said that he really considered his job to be undercutting the national government. He got up every day and figured out how to sue the national government. Rick Perry briefly flirted with the idea of secession and then walked back. But As you know better than I, I have no doubt, Texas is a very complicated state. It has four of the 11 largest cities in the country, and those cities are becoming more and more blue and more and more nationalist in terms, I think, of identifying with the United States and not being particularly sympathetic to these ideas of state sovereignty. On the other hand, the rest of Texas outvotes the four largest cities, and there they provide the base for people like Paxton and Abbott. And I think what's important about politics today, in contrast to 1860, is that it's a mistake to view American politics through a regional lens. Every state in the union today, I think has a marked divide between its cities and the rest of the state that is suspicious of the cities and in some cases distrusts and hates the cities. I think this is true in Alabama. I think it's true in Idaho. So in 1860, you could really talk of the North versus the South. That doesn't make much sense today. Georgia is so sharply divided between Atlanta and a few other cities and the rest of Georgia. And you just go through the states, and see that over and over again. But I do think that the anti-urban part of America does have a nostalgia for a kind of confederationist notion that they will be in charge and can escape what they view increasingly as an alien national government,
4: I was interested too in your opinion piece that ran in the Dallas Morning News, the Sunday edition on the thirty-first uh, of July. You mentioned two different um, opinions. You talked about the abortion opinion by this this current Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and also the Second Amendment question that was and and and, I, and. As I thought about it, I'm thinking the Federalist Society helped put a majority of the current court mm-hmm. in place. And yet you had two rulings that basically, it seemed, contradicted each other in terms of what states could or couldn't do. Yep. Because they were they were saying on the one hand that a state can't limit guns, but on the other hand, they, they can limit abortion.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, putting on my lawyer hat for... 90 seconds. Okay. I I would say, well, the people who like both decisions Mm -hmm. would say just read the Constitution. The Second Amendment spells out a right to keep and bear arms. Just read the Constitution. Nowhere does it talk about reproductive choice or abortion. But there are all sorts of problems with that argument. And I won't take the time unless you want to go down to go through the problems, because I think you've identified a really, really interesting contradiction between the two opinions at the ideological level. The people who like the idea of what you called earlier. The Confederation notion Mm -hmm. states should be allowed to make their own decisions on matters of public importance that should apply to both abortion and guns. And so what the court said on I think it was a Wednesday was that New York could not have its own policies with regard to who could have guns. There had to be a single one-size-fits-all policy. There's nothing, nothing confederationist <laughs> about that. Right, It's rule from the center. And then the very next day they said, well, look, even though the Ninth Amendment says, we always have to remember that there are rights besides those that are specified in the text. They ignored that and said, you know, states can do whatever they want on abortion. That I think is in, those decisions I think are in real tension with one another. I can understand the argument that says local people know what's best for themselves. And that's true across the board. We don't need a national government to tell us how to live our lives. What is harder to understand, quite frankly, is to say, oh yeah, we do need a national government to tell New York, for example, that Manhattan isn't special. It's the same as Vermont (laughs) in terms of the potential consequences of allowing freewheeling access to guns. I don't think it makes any sense. Um, But by the same token, many liberals are also caught in that same tension. That is to say, and I'll use the word we, because those are my politics, we would say that it's really important to note that New York is different from Idaho, particularly the urban areas, or Washington, D.C., you know, just march through the differences, and those ought to be recognized with regard to guns. But with regard to reproductive choice, we live in one united country that ought to have one united policy. I'm prepared to defend that. But I also can understand why somebody would say, you know, isn't there a tension there that we really ought to explore? So nobody has a pure argument on what issues really should be left to local people and local politics to decide, and what issues have to be decided Not only at a national level, but increasingly at an international level. If you're worried, as I am, about climate change and environmental policy, then it's very clear that state by state decision making isn't adequate, and increasingly country by country decision making is inadequate. You need international agreements but you know we're at each other's throats as to where you draw the lines between those matters that we the people of Travis County or we the people of Texas or we the people of the United States should make the decision you know there's there's no general agreement on that. There's one other issue, of course, is the Supreme Court the best body or the best institution to engage in the line drawing? And very obviously, they didn't really do a bang up job of convincing most of the population that, oh yeah, it makes sense to decentralize abortion policy at the very same moment you're radically centralizing the policy on guns and we're the people that we the nine judges by a five to four vote will tell you where to draw the lines
4: the uh, opinion piece that we've referenced uh, the final paragraph i think uh, sums up what you've been saying and I quote, the nature of American federalism has always been up for debate since the founding moments themselves.
2: You know, at one level, we can treat these as matters for theoretical or what in a pejorative sense could be called academic Mm. debate, Mm. which is very interesting, but you can say at the end of the day, who really cares? But I think what a lot of people today are really nervous about is the move from the seminar table to the streets of Washington, DC on January 6th, and the extent to which January 6th may be predictive of more radical or violent movements in the future. Um, And I think the jury is still out on what is likely in the future. I don't think there's going to be a bombardment of Fort Sumter. That model of war is, you know, so 19th century, or, you know, but if one thinks, for example, of the Intifada Mm. in Israel, Mm. or the terrorist acts of the Irish republican army in northern ireland and for that matter in the uk in uk itself and right. england itself right. in the 1970s and 80s then i think we would have to be very foolish to say oh that can't happen here there are well organized movements in many ways the most valuable information delivered by the January 6th hearings is not only the complicity of Donald Trump, but also the organizational skills of the Oath Keepers and other groups that are really very serious and, you know, can't be dismissed as guys at a bar who are venting about what ought to be done. You know, it is very American to vent. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Oath Keepers and some of the other groups are not simply into venting. By the same token, people on the right, I think, give way exaggerated importance to Antifa. But they, too, can tell a story of radical left groups that are learning how to use arms and may, in fact, engage in various terrorist acts. And as I say, I don't see any very good reason to say with confidence that it can't happen here. I'm a child of the 60s. 1960s. And I have to say, in some ways, I have been surprised by how relatively non-violent most American politics continues to be. If you look at things we associate with the 1960s, including political assassinations, or you know other sorts of radical activities, many of them associated with the left,
4: right, yeah. though
2: not all of them, certainly. Ku Klux Klan in the South mm-hmm. was important, the white citizens' consuls. Our politics right now are extraordinarily strange. I would say as a child of the 1960s, that one of the important aspects of that decade was how optimistic people could be about the prospects for significant change. Whereas I think what is true today is a sense of sullenness and pessimism about the possibility of significant change. Whether you're in the right or the left, I don't think you get up saying, well, tomorrow will bring us a better day. Um, In the 1960s, 65% of the population said, I trust the national government to be looking out for people like me. If you looked at approval ratings, even at the time of the credibility gap, they were wildly better than they are now, where Congress on a good day will have the approval of one sixth mm-hmm. of the American mm-hmm. people. The Supreme Court is now well below majority approval. President, The last two presidents in particular have very quickly settled somewhere in the high 30s and low 40s the only national political institution that people have confidence in is the military. And I think that's extraordinarily different from the 1960s, where you know it helped to be a liberal on domestic policy, but if you were a liberal, you could really see significant change happening And Lyndon Johnson, to the amazement of many people, became the most visible and eloquent, far, far more so than John Kennedy. The the most eloquent proponent of significant change in American politics. There's no optimism these days on the left and I think there's almost no optimism on the right. And I think that contributes to this sense of sullenness. And then the question is, you know, is this like a tender dry forest that's waiting for a match to set off some sort of conflagration? Say, it's not going to be an attack on Fort Sumter or Fort Hood, but it could take the form of the IRA or the Intifada or whatever. Or will people just continue to feel more and more angry about what they feel is happening to their country and believe that really nothing can be done about it? That we have elections, but you know, at the end of the day, they don't turn out to be all that important because relatively little happens. The Republicans couldn't repeal Obamacare, even though they had the presidency and both the House and the Senate. And Joe Biden can get through only that part of his domestic program. That Joe Manchin and K- Kristen Cinema right. will support. Right. Um, so, you know, Yogi Berra said it's really hard to predict the future, <laughs> and um, he was right. I I can give you scenarios of an impending civil war. They're, you know, there recent books have been written yes. about the American upcoming American Civil War. I happen to be very, very interested in the theory of secession and, you know, am curious whether there will be any serious secessionist movements in the United States or not. I doubt that there will be because of what I mentioned earlier, that is the split within states ultimately being more important than the splits between states gotcha. um, um you know or will something magical happen in the 2024 2028 elections where out of the discord and polarization will come some new American consensus that will be able to govern—I'd be surprised, but who knows? Um, that I mean, I think one of the realities is that right now we're being effectively governed by a gerontocracy, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and I think there's a whole. The metaphor that comes to mind: they are the dam that is holding back a new generation of people who, unlike me, do not remember the 1960s. The 1960s have no more meaning for Pete Buttigieg than, let us say, World War One mm. had for me mm. when I was in graduate school. Gotcha.
4: if we are facing this dam, this wall, this is an area that I hadn't even thought about, but the way, you, the way you pictured that for me, that we have this wall of gerontology, what comes next? Let's say the dam breaks. What comes next? Is it the Buttigieg wave, or is it the DeSantis wave?
2: Well, again, you know, Yogi Berra, should be our, <laughs> our guide here. It is not unthinkable. It's probably unlikely, but it's not unthinkable that 2024 could be a contest between Buttigieg and Tom Cotton mm. from Arkansas, yes. a very, very smart, very conservative senator who doesn't c- carry all of the baggage that DeSantis does, including the fact that I suspect that Donald Trump will do whatever he can to sabotage DeSantis, because DeSantis is not waiting around (laughs) for Trump (laughs) to make his decision. Josh Hawley, I think is fading fast, but one of the things I find interesting about Hawley and Cotton, both of them are the products of thoroughly elite education. They're champing at the bit to take over. And there are other Republican relative youngsters. Um, Like many, many, many people, I have become an unexpected admirer of Liz Cheney. And am genuinely curious at what she's going to do with the rest of her life because I don't think she has a real future in the Republican party but it might be that this is 1912
4: Mm, where the mm. party
2: system is collapsing and Cheney could be a very very interesting third party candidate and She has clearly demonstrated a political imagination and integrity that makes her close to unique right now. I think that prior to Donald Trump, the ultimate step upward for her would have been to become Speaker of the House. She was on that track. But clearly her future now will be something dramatically different. And I will be very curious to see what she does. But, I mean, the Republican Party is full of very, very ambitious relative youngsters, none of whom I would vote for, but they are clearly serious in terms of having political visions and a willingness to throw themselves into the hard work of politics. I think that is less true in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party right now is led by old people who don't want to give up. in, in an American political science convention at some time in the 1960s, I would swear under oath that I heard John P. Roach, who was a political scientist from Brandeis, who also was an advisor to Lyndon Johnson. Okay. But I would swear that I heard him say power corrupts and the prospect of losing power uh corrupts absolutely. (laughs) I think that's a very profound insight. And there are different forms of corruption. Um, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is corrupt in any traditional sense. James Clyburn certainly isn't. But I think that all of them share with Trump a desire to keep the power that they've got and not to give it up voluntarily. I want Joe Biden to tell us tomorrow that he's not running for reelection. I think that one of the carryover views from the 20th century that is increasingly demonstrably false is that lame duck presidents are necessarily weaker than presidents who can in effect threaten to run for reelection. I think that might've been true in the 1960s. I think it is false in our century. I think Biden would in fact be stronger rather than weaker if he said that I'm gonna be one term president. Back in 2016, I strongly advocated Hillary Clinton, who was then a youngster of a mere 68 or 69, that she should declare that she would be a one-term president, which would mean, among other things, she would spend no time raising money. She would spend every single day thinking only about what's best for the American people govern with that vision and turn over the presidency in 2020 to her successor. Um, But, you know, I've taught at UT for 42 years. There's a very good argument that I should have retired, but I enjoy what I'm doing. My dean wants me to stay. And so I'm still teaching. It is very, very hard for people voluntarily to give up what they enjoy doing, whether it is teaching or holding political power. My teaching at the University of Texas Law School, I don't think really causes much harm. It probably doesn't do much good either.
4: If Biden were to declare, as you said, tomorrow... Uh, that he was going to not run, that he was not going to run for reelection. You've mentioned DeSantis and Hawley. Uh, I guess we could throw Nikki Haley in there. Greg Abbott, a few other names, Tom Cotton, yeah. a few other names. Who do you see? You've mentioned Buttigieg. I mean, obviously, people are going to say the vice president, the current vice president. Yeah. Who
2: else? Well, I mean, that's a terrific question, and given my own politics, my answer is fairly depressing because. One can think of the senators who ran in 2016 and who were all impressive, but none of them really took off. Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, um, Vice President Harris for a variety of reasons, including, I think, a certain lack of generosity by Joe Biden. She has not really been given an opportunity to shine. There are a couple of Democratic governors. The one who's getting a lot of mention right now is Governor Pritzker from Illinois. I don't see the governor of California Mm. mobilizing a national political coalition. Given kind of the mythic state of of California, there aren't any other Democratic governors who immediately leap to mind. So speaking as a Democrat, I think one would have to say, you know, politics is always surprising. Mm. And maybe somebody will come out of the woodwork whom we don't really imagine right now, but who will just capture us I mean, let me say, and I'm not saying this altogether seriously, but I'm not altogether kidding either. When Steve Kerr gave his pre-game talk and said, you know, the championship of the NBA is nice, but it's really, really trivial. Let's talk about gun violence. Mm-hmm. I thought he exemplified leadership, and it's no crazier looking to an NBA coach than to a former actor or a hotel developer, <laughs> you know as a potential president. You know, I'm capable of being surprised. Uh, I mean Kerr is an interesting guy because his father. Was assassinated in Beirut in I think the 1970s. He was president of the American University Mm. in Beirut. Mm -hmm. So Kerr is a quite sophisticated person. To my knowledge, he has never expressed any interest in a political career. And I don't think it would be a good idea to start out by running for president. (laughs) But I will say that somebody I'm honored to call a friend is Bill Bradley. Mm. You know, Bradley began as a member of the New York Knicks. And I now regret every single day that he did not become president of the United States. You know, we live in strange times. If Beto by some minor miracle yeah. should beat Abbott, then there would be renewed pressure on him to run. And it was a big mistake for him to run in 2020. Well, you know, I I saw one article in the Washington Post saying that Senator Warnock, if he wins oh. reelection in Georgia, mm-hmm. is somebody we might take seriously that he's a very capable guy. He is certainly eloquent. And he could, you know, realign American politics as we think of it by turning every state in the South, maybe even including Mississippi, into a battleground state. The times are (laughs) a-changing, and we don't really know how they're going to go.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. (laughs) But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it.